Um, and you know, when we talk about a Catholic way of drinking, well, what's a Catholic way of drinking? It's that God is at the center and everything else flows from that. Welcome to the Pints and Pews podcast. I'm Robert, and normally we're just a couple of guys talking the Catholic faith over a pint or two of our favorite beer. So why don't you pour yourself a pint and listen in for the next little while as we take the faith seriously, but not necessarily ourselves. And as always, if you want to take part in the conversation, leave us a comment or swing by our Facebook page and drop us a line. Like I just said, and like I've been saying for the last couple of episodes, normally we're just a couple of guys talking the Catholic faith over a pint or two of our favorite beer. Unfortunately, again, like the last couple of episodes, I still seem to be flying somewhat solo as uh, my buddy Dennis is still at home with some health issues. But uh, like I've been saying, he is recuperating nicely. And one day there may be that fabled return of Dennis to the Pints and Pews podcast. It would be great, however, in the meantime, if you leave a quick prayer comment or message via the Facebook page, and I'll make sure it gets to Dennis. I know, and he has said a number of times how much he appreciates the prayers that have been coming his way. So again, like I said, flying somewhat solo, but also knowing that the Pints and Pews podcast is a couple of guys talking about the Catholic faith over a pint or two of our favorite beer. I'd like to introduce to you this episode's guest. Dr. R. Jared Stout is a Catholic father, teacher, writer, speaker, and Benedictine oblate who dedicates himself to helping others to experience and embrace the vibrant Catholic tradition. He works in the formation of teachers and catechists in the Archdiocese of Denver while teaching theology at the Augustine Institute and church history for the Denver Catholic Biblical School. While doing all of this, Jared still finds time to teach, write, speak, lead retreats and pilgrimages, which focus on the intersection of faith and life. He does this through his website, buildingcatholicculture.com, and a number of books, including most recently, Renewing Catholic Schools, How to Regain a Catholic Vision in a Secular Age, as well as a title that was one of the catalysts to the Pines and Pews podcast, The Beer Option, Brewing a Catholic Culture Yesterday and Today. And to top all of this off, Jared still does all of this while finding the time with his wife, Anne, to seek to build a Catholic culture within their own domestic church in their home, with a view of sharing that Catholic culture with other families. Jared, welcome to the Pines and Pews podcast. I want to say, how are you doing? Oh, you're welcome. I want to say, how are you doing this evening? But uh, for me, it's evening. And for you, it's still afternoon. So... Yes, rapidly approaching evening, but uh, no, it's been a very good day. I was out visiting a school uh, through my work for the Archdiocese, and now very happy to uh, be with you here. Well, I'm so excited to to have you here. Like I said, a a little bit of nerves because this book, The the Beer Option, Brewing a a Catholic Culture Yesterday and Today, it was so me, just that that intersection of, of the beer and the faith and two things that kind of go together as not part of my identity, but part of just kind of who I am and, and things that I'm passionate about. You must be exhausted. You said you had a busy day, but you know, I'm exhausted enough just reading your bio. Yeah. Who was that guy? I'm like, listening to that. Oh man. You know, that guy must be exhausted. No, uh, I'm, I'm doing great. 
um, you know, I, I teach a lot in the evenings. And so I, I'm doing a 30 week art history class. I was doing that last night, teaching the catechism to, to some religious sisters on Monday and having a lot of fun with my six kids. So life is good. And, you know, I was really thinking as you were talking about that love of faith and beer going together, I'm like, yes, that's what it means to be Catholic, right? You know, people tell me that all the time with the beer option. You're like, yeah, you know, we can be Catholic and still, you know, really enjoy uh, all these gifts of culture, you know, great art and music, beer and wine, all of the beautiful churches and buildings that we've constructed. And, you know, I try to take people to go see them on pilgrimage, although it's been a little bit more difficult recently, but you know, that is why it's great to be Catholic. We have such a rich heritage to explore. Yeah. And as you're saying that, I'm reminded in our last episode when I was chatting with K. Albert Little, the, the cordial Catholic, he said that was one of the things that was instrumental for him coming into the faith. He hooked up with a group of like-minded, well, he was still converting, but he, he hooked up with a group of Catholic gentlemen that would get together on a Friday evening and they would discuss the faith over a beer. And he said, it was fantastic to meet these guys that were passionate about the faith that knew the faith, but would also enjoy a nice cold beer. And, and when you do that, it's amazing the difference that it makes. You know, you could talk about faith, but a lot of times people get kind of cagey. Like, are you trying to push your faith on me? But you open up a beer, you sit down at the pub or in your house, and all of a sudden you can just kind of shoot the breeze and just kind of naturally talk about life and share your faith. And it doesn't seem awkward for some reason. And that's why we have these groups like Theology on Tap, Catholic Beer Club. You could even say this podcast, right? You know, uh, beer just really does open us up to conversations uh, about the faith. When it's consumed rightly, though, I always want to add that, you know, and that's one thing, too. And we need to make more of a habit on the podcast of, you know, enjoy your beer responsibly. And as well, throughout your book, a number of times you talk about that, that, you know, in moderation, responsibly and done properly. Yeah, I, I, I like to say in the context of feasting, fasting and friendship, that you're drinking for the right reason, you're drinking in moderation. Um, and you're really doing it in a spirit of, of friendship, camaraderie, um, and you're, you're not just doing it to escape from anything. So those are my principles, feasting, fasting, friendship. And so often it takes a, a few years of age to come to that wisdom. I know for myself in my younger days, uh, I never got quite past the feasting part of the, the, the <laughs> beer drinking thing. We were chatting a little bit before we started. Um, about Kloster Andex, which is in the, the south of Germany in Bavaria near Munich. And I lived in that area and I would be there almost every weekend. And like I said, at that time, at the age of 24, uh, the religious aspect of the, of the monastery wasn't really the reason why I was going there. It was, you know, straight to the beer garden. Um, like I said, for a different kind of religious experience. Well, I wasn't too far away when I was in high school. I, I was in uh, Western Poland in the city of Poznan. And that was my first time coming into Germany was from there. Uh, I was just a sophomore in high school, but my dad and I took a little trip around Germany and we were actually in Munich drinking Weihenstephaner. So another very old Benedictine beer, no longer brewed by the Benedictines, but it is traditionally a Benedictine beer, St. Stephen, right? Um, and, you know, you can just feel that culture there, you know, as you're, you know, you're sitting in this historic site 
enjoying this beer that's a thousand years old. Um, and it's just, you know, totally different environment than let's say having your first beer on a college campus, you know, so, you know, really learning about drinking in Poland, in Germany, in this Catholic environment. Um, I totally, uh, was set off on a different course than most people. Yeah. And it also, the beer tastes so much better. I think anyways, in that, in that environment, all of this talk about beer, like I said, reading your bio, I was exhausted (laughs) and dry. So I need to ask, what are you drinking with us this evening? Well, um, I really love to drink, um, older beers in America. You know, when you you think a lot of these old beers and and it's the the big breweries that survived prohibition and, and survived you know, consolidation after prohibition was lifted, but there are some smaller breweries that survived. Now the one back in my home area, Yinling in Pennsylvania, that's kind of a big brewery, um, but there's shell in Minnesota. I'm drinking one out of Michigan. So one of these ones that survived, it's not the same company, but it's from the mid 19th century. It's the Frankenmuth uh, brewery from Michigan. Um, and so it, it's gone through some different name changes through the years, but nonetheless, you have this one um, building, this one site that's kind of made it uh, for mm-hmm. 150 years. So I'm drinking their old Detroit, which is a red ale. Very nice. The red ales are usually one of my favorites. And actually, that's what I had on the last episode. So I, I, I'm going to mix it up a little bit. But why don't you open that up? And as you're pouring, I'm going to introduce, I'm having from the Kuchiching Brewery which is in Aurelia. That's about an hour's drive north of where I am. So say 60 miles. I want to say, I know it's 80 kilometers, but say 60 miles north of of where we are. My wife and I were there in August to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. And my wife, what a blessing she is, allowed us to stop in the local craft brewery while we're celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. So I'm having their Lacle Lager, (laughs) which I fell in love with while we were doing the the tasting in there. So we'll open this up and we'll give this a a pour. How does your Detroit red look? Uh, It's beautiful, you know, uh, really nice kind of brownish amber color. Nice head. Getting the pores is always tricky, but a big part of of getting that right and uh, you know thor- thoroughly enjoyable part of the the process. Now, my Lacle is a, a nice. I'll hold it up here. I know the the listeners can't see it, but so you can can have a look. Yeah, no, Kate, and yours nice and dark, and this is a a nice golden color. Uh, a very full flavored lager, which I said, I I've come to enjoy. Now, normally at this part, before we take our first sip, or as I like to say, the first two sipimus, uh, we say grace before beers, which comes from the, the Roman rite and is an official church blessing for beer. However, I pinched that from your book, the beer option. <laughs> so if you're willing to, because I learned it from you. So if you're willing to take the lead on that, that would be, that would be super. Yes, certainly. So it is from the Roman ritual. So it's an official blessing 
Now, I'm not a priest, so I can't officially bless any beer, but we'll just ask the Lord to do the blessing. So this is more of just a devotional prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Blessed, O Lord, this creature beer, which thou hast deigned to produce from the fat of grain, that it may be a salutary remedy to the human race, and grant through the invocation of thy holy name, that whoever shall drink it may gain health and body and peace and soul through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. But the first talk I ever gave on beer was actually an explanation of that prayer. I just went through it piece by piece. And so really that's the beginning of the beer option. It's that prayer. And I wanted to name the book, This Creature Beer, uh, but we decided to build off of the Benedict option instead, which is why it's the beer option. Okay, but yeah, that's an, that would be an interesting topic as well. This creature beer, we don't think of inanimate objects as creatures, and I'm just starting to go through um, the spiritual exercises of Saint Augustine, uh, Saint Ignatius of Loyola, and the part about just detachment from creatures, but also that creature things such as beer, God has given to us to help us get to heaven. Yeah. And when we think of, you know, like an animal or plant, right, that's a creature that God has made. Beer is a creature that we've made, right? It's something that we created using the gifts that God has given us, you know, barley and hops, of course, water and, and building on yeast, even though, of course, that wasn't understood for a long time. And it's interesting that even though it's a creature that we've made, it's the prayer still says, which you have deigned to produce, right? So, God gave us all the ingredients. He gave us our intelligence and then beer came forth. So it's still uh, a blessing uh, from above. That's amazing to think of it that way too. And that you know, God, like you say, put all of the elements together, including our, our own intelligence and our own abilities to do that. I was surprised that you chose a beer out of Michigan. Is in your book, you mention it, that you live in the Napa Valley of craft beers. <laughs> Right, that, that northern northern Colorado is kind of considered the the Napa Valley of craft beers. It's uh, kind of the hub of of craft breweries and all these small craft breweries. So I needed to to ask you: Is there a Catholic men's fellowship revolving around this craft beer industry in your area? Yes, we do have a Catholic beer club of young adults that meets up. Um, in the Denver area, they'll, they'll do it different parts of, of the area, north or south of Denver as well. Uh, we have a, a very strong theology on tap group um, that meets in a pub down in, in Denver. Um, and there's another one in Colorado Springs as well. Um, and then you, you see some things springing up in parishes as well. So Holy Name Parish is, is uh, a, a church that came up a couple of times in my book. And they have um, a religious order there. And one of the brothers who's in the order will brew at the parish. And, and actually, I even joined him one time to brew there at the parish with a group of young adults. And then they'll regularly feature their beer at different parish events. So there, there are a lot of uh, neat things happening um, in Denver. And it is great to be here. I definitely do enjoy uh, the craft beer scene here. Um, I'm in Castle Rock, so south of Denver, and Great Divide actually opened up a smaller brewery here, so that's one of the big Denver breweries. Uh, we have a nice little brewery called Burley, uh, which is just a couple miles from my house, 
which I like a lot as well. So uh, don't don't be fooled just because I I pulled out a Michigan beer uh, doesn't mean that I don't like to drink local. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we're seeing a, a growth in that industry in our areas, area as well. Like I said, the one I'm drinking today from the the Kuchiching Brewing Company which is about an hour north of where we are. But in our own small town where we live here in Port Perry, there's the old Flame Brewery, which is a 15-minute walk from home. Right? So it's the, the, the perfect place to, to go. And the dog can come in as well. So you know, I'll mention to my wife, I'm taking the dog for a walk, and then I'll have my <laughs> spiritual reading along with me, uh, and we'll go and hang out there for a little while. Now that sounds like a Catholic experience to me. Grab your spiritual reading, your dog, and go to the brew pub. I yeah, love it. Yeah, so it's, it's great. We've had our, our beers and our first sip, and the first sip is always the best sip. Mm-hmm. At the part in the podcast now where, again, when my buddy Dennis is here, that's kind of where he likes to step up and kind of take over and ask the question, what is Dr. R. Jared Stout's faith story? What is your faith foundation? You mentioned a little bit of your travels when you were in high school, but how did you get to where you are today in the faith? Mm-hmm. And I would say in general, you know, I think what distinguishes my life and, and my kind of mission of service in the church is trying to recover and to build Catholic culture. Um, and growing up, I, I really was not in that culture. I was a non-practicing Catholic. I mean, heck, it took me three years to get my first communion because I didn't go enough and would drop out. I even said to my dad after that, hey, dad, can we start going to church? He's like, no. Uh, but then I was expelled from school when I was in seventh grade. I brought my Boy Scout knife to school, never even had detention. Um, but there was a zero tolerance policy. And only the Catholic school would take me in. Now, the priest knew my family, and he said, against the principal's wishes, he said, we're going to give this kid a chance. About a month later, he said, will you come and serve Mass at 6.15 in the morning? It's the anniversary of my ordination. And I was like, yes, absolutely, Father. You gave me a second chance here. And my mom felt the same way. Yes, I'll drive you in. doesn't matter how early it is. And I really felt the Lord calling me home that morning. He said, I really felt like he inspired me and said, you know, this is where you belong. This is what you've been looking for. Because I was a kind of restless kid. I you know, liked to read a lot and was kind of interested in unsolved mysteries, like what really is the meaning of life? And, and here it was. That next year in eighth grade, you know, the first Catholic book I read was Faustina's Diary. And that was my first connection to Poland, actually. And then John Paul's Crossing the Threshold of Hope. Then I read the whole Bible, cover to cover in eighth grade, got confirmed and really felt through that confirmation, like the Lord was calling me to teach, you know, to be able to answer questions about the faith. And so then, you know, to help be equipped in that, I read the whole catechism that summer before ninth grade, started reading about the lives of the saints. And it was in that ninth grade year, I was very active in my Catholic high school and my Catholic parish. I helped get like a divine mercy prayer group going, those kinds of things. Uh, But I got this letter in the mail about studying abroad. It was from the Rotary Club uh, in Harrisburg. And so I said to my mom, she was like watching TV. I said, hey, mom, can I apply to be an exchange student? And she was like, yeah, 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 sure, whatever, because she wasn't. <laughs> so two weeks later, I said, hey, mom, these guys from the Rotary Club are coming to our house to talk about me studying abroad next year. She was like, what? Yeah. 
That, that like, usual parent thing where, yeah, I'll answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until you go away, but not really listening to what the question is. Uh, I've been guilty of that a couple of times, too, I think. But I had kept reading, you know, I read John Paul's biography. That was even before Witness to Hope existed, but it was the old Tadia Schultz uh, biography. I was reading the letters of Maximilian Colby. So all these things were pulling me to Poland. So I got accepted as an exchange student, turned 16, set off, crossed the world. And that really was my first deep encounter with Catholic culture. Um, and, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. It was shortly after the Soviet Union collapsed. And so Poland was in the Soviet bloc. What was it going to be like? How strong was the faith going to be? Well, I was blown away. I mean, there was mass every 15 minutes of the day. Um, wow. Really deep immersion into faith. The beauty of the architecture, a lot of Baroque churches in Poznan. Um, really experiencing the art, and organ music. I was able to travel around Europe a bit, like the trip to Germany I mentioned. I also took my first trip to Rome. And it was really, like I said, this, this recovery, this immersion into the church's deep tradition. And, you, you know, I, I ended up going to high school seminary after that year out in Wisconsin, actually. And from there, went up to Minnesota to the University of St. Thomas. And my undergrad and master's degree was in Catholic studies. And so it really was a continuing immersion. It was a holistic approach to the Catholic tradition, theology, philosophy, art, literature, you know, really trying to use all of those different angles to view the faith as a whole, as, as something that's alive in the church. And that needs to be continued uh, to be transmitted uh, to the new generation here today. And I was able to study in Rome uh, through the Catholic studies program and studied the writings of Christopher Dawson on uh, the nature of culture throughout history and how religion has always been at the center of culture until our own culture, of course. And so just really felt called to focus on culture so that the faith is not an idea, but that it's something to be lived. And, and through the course of, of those experiences, I was interested in the Benedictine tradition as well. So I spent some time while I was in seminary at a Cistercian monastery when I was doing my doctorate at Ave Maria, which after Pope Benedict was elected Pope and, you know, that whole idea of him taking the name Benedict for a reason, you know, yeah. kind of yeah. goes back to that tradition. That's actually, it was during grad school down in Florida when I made that connection to beer. You know, I, I'd enjoyed, you know, learning about the history of beer, even when I was in Europe. Uh, but, you know, really feeling this call into a Benedictine spirituality and I am an oblate. Um, I was able to kind of make that connection between something I enjoyed here. And then also this kind of spirituality that I was discerning through the Benedictines. I was like, well, wait a second, here I am drinking this Trappist beer or Norbertine beer or, you know, Augustinian beer, whatever it was, or other Benedictines. And I'm like, there's a whole tradition here. And so the Trappists who are in the Benedictine family, you know, they are brewing out of their spirituality of prayer and work. You know, their whole day is marked by prayer, all these hours, but then their work is an extension of that. And I'm like, and here they are brewing the best beer in the world. So there's got to be something to that. So I really got interested in that. I started doing like tastings for men and even my students at the Augustine Institute got invited to start talking about beer. And that was really the beginning of then the beer option. And I was blown away reading in the beer option. And you're talking about that whole Benedictine tradition and the or et labora and the, the prayer and the work. And I can't remember which one of the, the monks it was or which one of the monasteries. I want to say it was 
and I, my, my Flemish is so horrible. So I'll really mispronounce this a, a year in Brussels and I still speak no Flemish. It's you a know. tough language. Yeah. speak in Flams. And that, that was it. Like, <laughs> uh, the Westflaren. Westflaren. Thank you. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it wasn't because, like you say, they brew the best beer in the world. They, they brew the beer that is in the most event. People line up for days mm-hmm. to get it. And then you can only get it at the monastery, which you say is at the end of a little dirt track kind of thing. And when asked, you know, you have this amazing beer, you have this amazing product, you know, the, the millions that you could be making off of this. And the brother's reply was, but then it won't be prayerful. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the only one of the Trappist beers that is made completely by the monks. They, they have lay helpers, but they are the brewers. If you go like to the Chimay Brewery, Mm-hmm. Um, at the Scormont Abbey, Notre Dame de Scormont, uh, you, you see that, you know, they have a big brewery and the monks oversee the brewing, right? The monks, to, to be an official Trappist beer, has to be on the grounds of the monastery. The monks have to be involved and have to oversee it. And, and any excess funds beyond what is needed to support the monastery have to go to charity. But the Bless Vladeren is different because the monks are the brewers, and they have lay people helping in other secondary ways, but yeah, that is um, their beer. And you're right. If, if they tried to really scale that up, well, then they would have to have lay brewers helping them. And it, it couldn't simply be the work that they do in between uh, their prayer and the chapel. It, it will end up taking over and having a life in and of itself. Absolutely. And, and the abbot has spoken into this. You can even go on their website and read some reflections that the abbot's given on, on beer. And he said, I hope, I hope they're in English because they, yeah, no, no, like you, like you I, just I heard, if it's in Flemish, you know, game over. I don't read Flemish, you know, maybe, maybe French, but not Flemish. And, but the abbot said, we don't exist to brew. We exist to pray. And the brewing helps us in our ministry of prayer. Like there it is. And it how is. beautiful is that? And that's why their beer is so good because yeah. it's ordered rightly to the glory of God through prayer. You want to know, how do you make a great beer? Well, yes, there is skill involved. Of course, it's a craft, um, but it is brewing for the right purpose. Yeah. And I, I can't wait to get back to Belgium. Uh, I'm still in touch almost daily with a good friend who lives just outside of Brussels. And again, when I was there at the age of 21, monasteries weren't exactly high on the list of places to be going to visit <laughs> maybe uh, for their beer at least may, maybe for their but you could get that beer at the corner pub you know where they had a hundred different other brands on tap as well so yeah brussels is impressive in that way you can get a lot of beer on tap there yeah. you know there's some uh, american monks in norcia italy which is saint benedict's hometown it's nurstia in the original latin but and you can get their beer online so i really recommend that you know not so up here in canada well okay <laughs> United States, you can get a beer on nursia.com. Um, you had to rub that in. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll smuggle some across the border for you. But um, anyway, uh, the monks have said that, you know, people will come to their monastery for the beer. Um, but then, you know, even though they're there for that reason, they'll ask questions, right? Or they'll say, they'll be curious, like, huh, what are the monks really up to here? You know, they may stick around for, for some prayer, just kind of sit in the back of the chapel. So I think that beer can be a bridge, you know, once again, in the right context, right? And so when you have brewing monks, like, like we have 
monks and at Mount Angel Abbey in Oregon who are brewing and they have a St. Michael's tap room there. Uh, there are other uh, monks who brew like at the new um, Subiaco uh, Monastery in Arkansas. There's different groups throughout the country and the Trappist in Spencer, Massachusetts. So you, people go for the beer, right? But then they can say, well, hmm, why do monks brew or, or who are monks? What are they really doing? Uh, so I think even the fact that there are these kind of touch points um, is a good sign. And thanks be to God, the monks are there and they are still brewing and still pulling in people that way. Thanks be to God, there's guys like yourself that are also helping to draw people in and explain how faith and culture can fit together. And you're doing that through the buildingcatholicculture.com website as one of your, your avenues, as well as some of your books. So maybe if you could share a little bit about that apostolate that you're following of building a Catholic culture. Yeah, it, it, there's definitely many fronts um, in this effort. Uh, and so I, I do see Catholic schools as an important way of building culture. When you think of how much time kids spend in school, if our schools can be deeply Catholic, that is forming habits of prayer, of thinking and viewing the world from a, from a Catholic worldview, of celebrating the sacraments, uh, of really experiencing the beauty of Catholic art and music, of having opportunities to live out the faith, to serve others, to, to maybe go on pilgrimage, to go on retreat. I think these are ways that uh, the school can be a place of rebuilding Catholic culture. And so that's kind of my nine to five job uh, is helping Catholic schools to build culture. And as I was going through your your own bibliography, I was saying that is quite the, the theme that goes through a lot of your, your written work. Then, like I said, the Renewing Catholic Schools, which when I looked on Amazon, this was your, your most recent book. And mm-hmm. as a Catholic school teacher, I'm, you know, as soon as we're done here, I'll put my order in through Amazon and pick <laughs> that up. But also, yeah, you know, I mean, there is a kind of blueprint, right? If, if, if you're a parent or a teacher in a school and you're looking for ways uh, to try to be more intentional uh, about having the faith guide what's happening in the school. It, you know, it's a good book. You can give it to a principal, give it to a school pastor. So there's my but, Christmas shopping right there. There you have it. Yeah. Or, you know, the beer option's a good Christmas gift. I've heard yeah. from people as well. Um, you know, even maybe with like a, a bottle of Trappist beer, you can give the beer option alongside of it. Uh, but then also the family, right? And so I say there's four principles of building culture in the family, uh, praying together as a family, forming the imagination of your kids. And I think there's a positive and then more of a protective side of that. The positive side, read out loud together, read good Catholic books, or just like the good books, John Senior's thousand good books. So there's a lot of ideas there that you can find online, but then protecting them from technology, you know, through my work in Catholic schools, you wouldn't believe what even third graders are doing online with their phones. We have to be more protective, right? John, speaking of John Senior, he said, smash the TV. Yeah. I smashed my smartphone, right? So I, I have a light phone. There's also something called a gab phone. But we need to protect our kids. There are horrible things that happen to kids uh, through that um, saturation of technology. The third principle is just kind of building these common practices in the home, making meals together and, and guarding that family meal time, uh, do, doing work together. Um, doing recreation together, really having the Lord's Day as a day for prayer and the family. Uh, and then the fourth thing is, is building a community with other families. So that would be that front, the front of the family. Um, then there is, I think, 
learning about the great heritage that we have. I call it cultural literacy. So that's why I teach church history. I, I teach um, art history, Catholic art history. Uh, I, I'm really trying to help Catholics to recover that legacy that we have. It's just kind of sitting on the shelf collecting dust. Let it be your own. You know, Mozart's beautiful uh, compositions of sacred music. Reading Dante, this is the year of Dante. September 14th was, you know, 700 years since Dante died. So read the Divine Comedy, right? Read uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, lay hold of that treasury. Um, and also, you know, I, I teach the faith directly. And so the, I have a book coming out in a few weeks called The Primacy of God, The Virtue of Religion in Catholic Theology. But the primacy of God is true for building culture. God has to be first. Seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added from there. That's why the monks are great brewers, right? They're seeking God first, and then their work flows from that, from their prayer. And that should be true of everything that we do. And just that whole notion of being God-centered, and everything else will fall into place. And you were talking a little bit about that, again, in your story, as you were sharing, uh, as you started or restarted your education journey in the Catholic school, where you just felt a calling to be there. And then when you were called to serve at the altar, just a, a feeling that that was right, that this is where God was calling you to be at that moment. And I think sometimes we've lost as a society in general, that ability to discern that and to see that and because it hasn't been taught to us for one. And for the other is we're so in tune to the cacophony of everything else that's going on in the world around us. Like you said, the smartphone, which sometimes I want to take a hammer to as well. I highly encourage that. <laughs> so just having that, that God centeredness and a lot of those things that you were saying for the schools and for the family and for the community at large, it, it's all the same prayer, imagination, common practices and community. And that has to be uh, across the board with, with everything that we do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, culture can sound like a highfalutin word, you know, like I'm going to the opera or, and it, and it can mean that, but, but I think most fundamentally it's how I live and Christian culture is a way of life with God at the center. Right. And, and, and prayer is that, that opening. And as you said, sometimes we feel like we don't know how to pray. So people ask me, well, how do I pray? And the answer is do it, <laughs> do it. Just get started. Just get started. Yeah. It's a start. Take 10 or 15 minutes a day, open up your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, get a Bible. Right. But, mm -hmm. but open up, and that's God speaking to you, you know, so begin with the new Testament, begin with the gospels and then Paul's letters, you know, so you actually want to begin with the end and then kind of work your way backwards. But that's God speaking to you. You listen to that. You think about it. Um, and, and then your prayer becomes a response to that. Um, and then you just sit with God. You just be with him. You spend time with him. And he will teach you over time. And that's something, again, has not been uh, engendered within our society. Uh, I know for myself growing up, you know, we went to Mass on Sundays and we ticked the box, but that was about it. Whereas now, later in life as an adult, getting in the habit of adoration. And I always say, I'm so blessed to work in a Catholic high school with a chapel, with the Blessed Sacrament. And that's my first stop every morning because it helps center 
my day. And then my wife and I, that's date night on Friday night. We're at our parish for adoration and being able to sit in silence for that period of time. And that's something that was never taught to us as we were growing up. And we kind of want to say stumbled upon as our, on our own uh, as adults, but it's something that we do need to pass on to the next generation as parents and as educators. And that's one thing I enjoy doing when we are allowed to move around the school building is taking my religion classes down to the chapel for 15 minutes of prayer and adoration. And if you want to see a room full of teenagers squirm, you have them sit silently for five minutes. And that's the best thing you could do for your class. I mean, and silence is a gift and, and it's hard. Pascal said, there's nothing more terrifying than silence when we want distraction, right? But when you get rid of all those distractions, turn off the smartphone or smash it, but at least turn it <laughs> off, right? Set it aside, go sit in the chapel. You know, so it's two summers ago when I literally did smash my smartphone and I did have more peace of mind. This summer I gave up Facebook. Uh, just canceled my account. And it, it was just another layer, right? And we have to make space for God. You have to. And, and, and it's wonderful. Like you said, the first thing you do is you go to the chapel and yeah, we want to give the day to God. We want to make a little space for him. And over time, we want that space to grow and truly become the center of everything. Um, and, you know, when we talk about a Catholic way of drinking, well, what's a Catholic way of drinking? It's that God is at the center and Everything else flows from that, the way that you eat, the way that you drink, everything. And so if, you know, we talk about what would Jesus do, right? If, if you were sitting there with Jesus, right, you know, what would you be comfortable doing, you know? And we, we want uh, to have a healthy way of drinking from a bodily perspective, but we, we want a way of drinking that promotes God's glory and our good. And as we were talking about silence there, I was reminded a, a great quote from Cardinal Sarah. Now, if we don't have silence, how can we find God? That's right. And he also says that God speaks to us, but he speaks to us in silence. He says, you know, silence is the language that God uses to speak to us. Yeah. And just having listened to that, you, you were going on about all of the reading you did by ninth grade. And that's more reading than most people do in a lifetime. <laughs> and so again, thinking of that, that quote, those two quotes from Cardinal Seurat and all of the reading that you've done before ninth grade. And I'm sure since ninth grade, you've read a book or two since ninth yeah, grade. I'd say that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a couple of favorite quotes that you've come across. Um, always like to ask them some faith quotes or maybe even some beer faith quotes that you like to turn to? Well, yeah, I think it would be appropriate to give some uh, about beer. And so for, just a few quotes from saints from the beer option. Um, and this is from one of the greatest Benedictine saints, St. Hildegard. And she was a poet, a playwright, a musician. Um, she was an herbalist. So kind of the best that you could get towards being a doctor in, in her day and age an abbess, uh, a mystic. Uh, but in, in, so she really had the, the full picture here. Uh, but she's, in terms of being an herbalist, she wrote a whole, you know, three different books on different herbs and medicines for people. And one of her books is called Causes and Cures. And in that book, she says, 
beer puts flesh on the bones. We kind of know that, of course, you have the beer belly, right? Oh, it's put more than just a little flesh on my bones. I can tell you that. <laughs> Happens and, to the best of us with age. And how about this? And gives a lovely color to the face. <laughs> the, the, account, the rosacea, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> I must be, yeah, yeah. She says, on account of the strength and good juices of the grain. Water, she says, on the other hand, has a weakening effect. Whether people are healthy or sick, they should drink wine or beer, not water. And we should have we should have doubly celebrated her feast day, which was just a couple of days ago. It was on Friday. You know, my my uh, you know, your name is Robert. My first name's Robert. That's the R, R Jared, Robert Jared. So that was our name day, Robert Bellerman. Yes. It's kind of a double feast day for me since I'm a Benedictine oblate with St. Hildegard. So that means then uh, we could have done away with our Friday fasting. On- well, you know, that's supposed to be for solemnities. I don't know if uh, feast day uh, qualifies or not. I, I have to say I did, I did um, have to pause and ponder that in my mind, but I'm like, nope, it's not a solemnity. Okay. All right. Stay, stay the course. <laughs> but when she's talking about how, you know, beer puts flesh on the bones and brings color to the face, it's really, it brings life to us and it helps, you know, makes us jovial. Yes, that's right. It, in the proper proportion, everything in moderation, everything, yes. right. You know, um, there is some alcoholism in my family and, and beer could bring death if, if you're addicted to it. Right. And so we do, and that's why we have those periods of fasting, you know, Lent and, the, and, and traditionally Lent uh, was a time to give up alcohol. Although, of course, there were monks in the Middle Ages who fasted uh, with beer. But nonetheless, traditionally, it was a time to give up um, alcohol. Advent was also a time of fasting originally. And so, you know, we have these periods to kind of pull back from eating and drinking so that when the feast comes, we do have that right perspective to enter into it. And if there's any listeners out there or new listeners to the podcast and want to hear a little bit of a notion on Lenten fasting and Lenten beer fasting. Dennis and I started the podcast this past Lent and we started the Pints and Pews podcast, two guys talking the faith over a beer during Lent and he was fasting from beer. So number one, the the start off was kind of like, we're starting a podcast about beer and you're not drinking it. We let that go, but we talked about how in some ways beer was made for Lent. And then you say that there's some monks in the middle ages and I'm thinking of the the Doppelbach beer, the Salvatore, that they would live just on beer. But again, like St. Hildegard was saying, for its nutritive value. And it wasn't like they were drinking cases of beer a day. Right. Actually, I I think it's somewhat of a pious legend. So Lent used to be like Ramadan. Ramadan actually is a copying of Lent. Mm -hmm. And so there was no eating during the daytime hours. It was, there was one, meal um in without meat um and there were a whole bunch of things without meat or any animal products or oil or wine that was the original lenten fast and over time uh it did grow a little bit lax you know there could be a collation during the day and, and all of that but the friars minimum uh friars minimum um they're the ones who started the polliner uh brewery in uh, munich and they had the Lenten fast all year long, actually. 
So they could only eat one meal under those circumstances a a day in the evening time. And so all year long, they were doing that Lenten fast. And so they needed something to kind of get them through the day. So uh, they're the ones who are doing that fast, um, but it wasn't actually on beer only, but it it was beer only during the day at least. Okay. So there's another myth busted. Yeah, there you have it. (laughs) Another Uh, beer, another beer quote, beer. Yes. So there are a couple Celtic saints who performed some great beer miracles. So St. Columban had three beer miracles and so did St. Bridget. Bridget was kind of the the mother of of all of the the Celtic nuns in Ireland. And one of the things that they did is that they both multiplied beer um, for their communities when when there was a shortage. But St. Bridget, of course, has this famous prayer and it begins, I'd like to give a lake of beer to God. I'd love the heavenly host to be tippling there for all eternity. Right. And, and she goes on to kind of talk about, you know, that that this lake is of beer is really filled by charity itself. Right. But so we can at least say this, that for St. Bridget, beer was an image of the great joy of heaven. And that's beautiful. And whenever I'm asked about how to describe heaven, what is heaven going to be like? And trying to describe that pure joy that we can't even begin to imagine is so difficult. So we need to try to find human ways to describe it. And yeah, so for some of us, myself included, is that lake of beer is just that Oh, that pure joy. And we live right beside a a lake here where we are. And you just think about the amounts. But again, coming back to to that theme of moderation and drinking it rightly, you would see that lake of beer and you you wouldn't even make a dent in it. You'd get a few mouthfuls in and it's like, there's too much flesh on my bones now and I'm not, (laughs) not, not feeling well. Well, at least in heaven, you know, you don't have to worry about that, you know. (laughs) <laughs> fair enough yeah you have a resurrected enough. body so you won't you won't get drunk you won't uh, get overweight you know it'll, it'll be fantastic but you know i think another way of thinking about this quote is if you were to think of the, t- the time of year that you were happiest with family you might think christmas um and and that is the time of year where we've preserved this the whole notion of festivity the most and you really can't have festivity in a traditional sense uh, without the feasting of, of good food and good drink. And I think St. Bridget is saying, that's what I want. I, I, I want the joy of that moment to overflow into heaven. Yeah, and we, we all are looking forward to that. And you know, that, that is our calling. And when we think about the joys of heaven, and eventually attaining the beatific vision, God willing, through the grace of God and ourselves willing, because we need to cooperate with God's grace if we're going to get there. The nearest thing to heaven on earth is the liturgy, is the mass. And I was intrigued as I was doing my homework and reading buildingcatholicculture.com, one of your more recent articles, Why Latin Matters, and the role of Latin, not only in the liturgy, but also through education. 
We were very blessed in our home parish here for three years after we moved to, to our town to have a pastor who was very traditional and prayed the Novus Ordo Mass, I think the way Vatican II intended for it to be prayed. Chant was a big part of the Mass, and the main parts of the Mass for the laity, the Gloria, the Sanctus, and the Agnus Dei, were all done in Latin. And so I wanted to ask you, do you think that Latin has a place in the Novus Ordo Mass. I'm not asking about you know, Pope Francis' recent motto proprio, and I know I completely mispronounced that as well. Uh, not asking about the traditional Latin Mass, which is a beauty in and of itself. But within the Novus Ordo, the, ma- the, the weekly Mass that we're all used to on Sundays, that most of us have grown up with, is there a place for Latin there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, and I, I started uh, attending the Novus Ordo in Latin with Father Joseph Fessio, the founder of Ignatius Press, when I was at Ave Maria. So the, the, the council fathers at Vatican II in the document Sacro Sanctum Concilium said that some vernacular may be used, right, in the Reformed liturgy. So Not all vernacular? Yeah, so some <laughs> vernacular may be used. So it was their intention to retain Latin. And Pope Benedict made the recommendation even that the form of the sacrament, so in terms of the Eucharist, hoc est enum corpus meum, you know, this is my body, uh, be in Latin or ego te baptizo in nomine, you know, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son. But these be in Latin so that we could be very strict and precise on the language needed for the celebration of the sacraments. And we saw the Vatican just came out and, and said that if you change the words of baptism, that baptism would even be invalid, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we, were, if we had that kind of unity throughout the Latin rite of the church with core prayers being in Latin, so, or, or Greek, right? The Kyrie eleison, Greek, right? Or anusei, uh, Latin, the sanctus, 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 holy, holy, holy in Latin, or the words of consecration. Um, you know, I, I mentioned about preserving and being enriched by the great heritage that we have. Well, a lot of that heritage is um, musical. Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Mozart's sacred compositions. Well, what language was Mozart using? He wasn't using German in those compositions. He was using Latin. And it's really not that hard to learn basic prayers in Latin if they're repeated. So, Sanctus, 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 Dominus Deus Sabaoth, or Pater Noster, Quies in Celis, you know, um, our Father who art in heaven. Those prayers are not difficult to learn. Pope Benedict had asked us, you know, to learn them. Why? So that when we gather around the world as Catholics, that we could pray together. You know, there are certain parishes where there are two uh, languages being used each Sunday, three, four languages being used each Sunday. I heard of a, a parish that actually had that many recently. If we had some of our core prayers in Latin, it would be a source of unity. It would also show greater solemnity, right? Because you're using something beyond our everyday ordinary speech. And then it would open up that, that great cultural legacy of the church. Yeah, and that notion of unity, I think, is key. And that was really struck home to myself. Five years ago, we were back in Portugal visiting the, the Azores, which is where my wife's family is from. And so we would go to Mass. Uh, my Portuguese is somewhat better than my Flemish. <laughs> but it, 
that's not saying much, right? No, I, but I, I, I can get by um, between French and then learning the Portuguese to know when my in-laws were talking about me. Uh, and <laughs> from there, the Spanish and Italian, like those, those Latin languages come. So while we were at mass in Portugal, even though I find it difficult to carry a conversation in Portuguese, because I had done the daily readings of the day in English, and because I know the parts of the Mass in English and have a rudimentary form of Portuguese, I was able to follow along and knew where I was in the Mass. And that's the, the, the beauty of our Catholic faith in that it is universal. But if those prayers had been in Latin and the main parts of the Mass had been in Latin, then there's absolutely no argument. You know exactly where you are because that's what you hear in Castle Rock on Sunday. That's what you hear up here in Port Perry on Sunday, and you're getting that wherever you go. Right. And the prayers that we already have memorized, to pray them in Latin, um, it's not a stretch because we would know what we're saying. If, if all of a sudden you had the Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy in Latin, well, you know the Holy, Holy, Holy. It's not like you're saying something you don't know what it is. You know that prayer. You know what it is. Yeah. And so learning it comes that much more quickly. And that's what we found when we came into the parish. And it was our first experience with Latin being prayed at a mass on Sunday. And you know, a bit of a culture shock at first, but within a few weeks and with the words in front of us, we were able to, to follow along. And the other thing that you were kind of alluding to there as well with the language is Sometimes things get lost in translation. And again, that's something that I see. I teach in French immersion. So I'm teaching all day in French. And there are some things the meaning comes across better in French. Like St. Peter is the rock. But in French, you know, St. Pierre est la pierre. It's the, it's the same word. Right. right. Or there's other times where maybe it's easier in English. So I'll switch over to English too for the students that they can fully grasp that. But there are some things, and you were saying that when it comes to the sacraments, the full deep meaning, sometimes a little bit gets lost in translation. Well, there's a great example of this recently. Um, in English, at least, we, we changed the conclusion to the opening prayer, to the collect, where we used to say one God forever and ever. But then it was pointed out, well, wait a second, that's not in the Latin. It's just God forever and ever. Uh, because... It's kind of confusing. Well, who are you referring to as the one? Because you're saying, Lord, you know, grant us this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son. Um, and, and then it's like, well, what's the one God meaning, right? Be, you know, so it was just God forever and ever, just like the Latin, right? Yeah, and, so and here I'm going to date myself as well, going back to the previous changes where there was a lot more changes made to the missile. And even just the, the initial response, you know, may the Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And also with you, right? Also, yeah. <laughs> well, why does that matter? And with your spirit? Well, because that's how the early Christians did it, right? And, and so we, we need to preserve these traditions. And, you know, having a sacred language is important for the church, that, that we pray in distinct ways that, that show that this is a sacred moment. It's a solemn moment. Facing East, all Christians praying together facing the East. That goes back to the earliest times. I mentioned I teach art history. Well, we have churches from the, the 200s or even the catacombs, first catacombs from the 190s, very late 190s. Mm -hmm. How did they celebrate mass? Well, 
towards the east with the altar against the wall. That's the oldest tradition we have that was preserved all the way until recently. All right. You know, so uh, that's part of it. You know, I think the, the liturgy is the heart of Catholic culture. The mass is the heart of Catholic culture. And so we do have to recover our own tradition and heritage uh, also surrounding the mass. Um, the great architecture and art and music and even language uh, that goes into praying the mass. And you talk about culture and mention, you know, culture and cultists, culture and cults, culture and worship kind of come from the, the same root. And again, in the article, you talk about how this Latin can be a key or a gateway or a doorway into a deeper understanding of our own culture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, when you think of the cultural heritage of, of Latin literature that we preserved. I mean, the, the church has really built Western education. So even our public schools today, where did that model come from? Well, it's the, the, the schools that the church opened up in the Middle Ages. That became the model of education. But preserved around Latin language and literature. You know, education happened in Latin through all those centuries. St. Augustine wrote in Latin even though his mom, Monica, right, was not a native mm -hmm. Latin speaker, right? It, it was actually, and he wasn't either because he says his nurse had to teach him Latin as a second language, right? St. Thomas Aquinas and doing his writing in Latin. And, you know, they're almost, well, they're 800 years apart, right? And so we see this common thread throughout the church's history coming down to us. And Pope John XXIII, the Pope who called for the Second Vatican Council, actually wrote an apostolic letter on the need for preserving the Latin language um, in the church. So very ironic, right? You know, that we, well, Vatican II got rid of the Latin. Well, actually, Vatican II said to keep the Latin. And Pope St. John XXIII talked about the great importance of, of Latin in the church just in the early 1960s. But not a lot of people know that. And, and a lot, not a lot of people uh, take the time even to, to find that out. And so I just wanted to kind of end that conversation on Latin with the very last sentence of your, your article here. I'm not going to ask if you have it memorized. So don't, don't worry about that. There's no test here. <laughs> the language of the saints and scholars can inspire our students to read deeply, think rightly, communicate clearly, and to enter more deeply into the mystery of our faith. So it is that gateway to culture and that gateway to worship, which is, yeah, I, I think, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and I, all I can say is I can offer my own personal testimony in that regards that, you know, I've been learning um, Latin for 25 years. I'm still learning Latin. Uh, and, and it has been a great enrichment to my life, to my understanding of the way language works, including the English language. Um, opening me up to classical history, to church history, and yes, also to prayer, you know, because it has influenced um, the way that I pray, learning the church's chant. I've been a part of scholas um, and, you know, learning uh, prayers in Latin. And, and I think that's been a great enrichment to my life. And uh, I'm very happy to be able to encourage others to enter into that great legacy and tradition through Catholic education. And thinking of that that invitation and that wanting to introduce others to the tradition of our faith through education, we've mentioned a few times that buildingcatholicculture.com. Where else would our listeners go if they want to know 
a little bit more, find out more about Dr. R. Jared Stout, find out a little bit more about the courses that you're teaching in your books. And if they wanted to pick some of that up, where would they, where would they find you? Yeah. Building uh, Catholic culture.com is the, 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 the best place to kind of find all the different things that I'm doing. There's even a link to the art class. I just finished the first two weeks, but it's a 30 week class. There's plenty of time to jump into that because it's online. Um, but I write a syndicated column called the Catholic culturalist. So your own diocesan newspaper could pick that up. Uh, if you were interested, it's distributed by the Denver Catholic paper. Um, I, I tried to repost some of the writing that I do other places at uh, buildingcatholicculture.com, but there's links to my books. So I have a book on Catholic culture. It's called restoring humanity on the evangelization of culture. Um, the text that I have coming out in a few weeks is, is, a, is a more serious theological work. So that may not be a great place to start. Um, but I did just finish a book on uh, the Eucharist as the center of Catholic culture. So I hope that'll be coming out next year. But you can follow all those things uh, through my website, buildingcatholicculture.com. Thank you very much. Looking at my glass, it's just about emptied. So that always tells me that the, the time is absolutely flying by. It has That's been hourglass, right? <laughs> it's, it's an hourglass. Exactly. And I always find that when it's just Dennis and I, by the time we get to the end, he's like, well, how come your glass isn't all that empty? It's because I'm busy talking. <laughs> We're now listening to you. I, I'm sure your glass is nowhere near as empty as, as mine is, but that is absolutely fantastic. And, and what a blessing to have gotten to meet you this afternoon, this evening, like I said, the, the beer option brewing Catholic culture yesterday and today was one of the catalysts to this pints and pews podcast. I started reading it because, you know, beer and faith, that's just, I have to read that. And then I started talking to Dennis and say, we got to do this. We got to do this. We have these conversations anyways, let's just record them. And now through the beauty of technology, you know, we can get together, you know, across international borders and have these kind of conversations over a pint, just the same as if we were sitting in a pub. Yeah. Praise God. Uh, that's a really wonderful thing. You know, I am going down to Oklahoma in a couple of weeks to do a men's event uh, on the beer option. So it's beer and Catholic manhood, both. And so I, you know, I think that to live the beer option is to use beer, to engage with other men and other Catholics to support them in faith, to evangelize what I call brew evangelization, right? bring other people into these kinds of conversations. So Robert, thank you so much for the, for the work that you do through this podcast and, and for uh, teaching in a Catholic high school. Uh, we all have to do our part. And we're all part. We are all a part of the mystical body of Christ. All right. And we all have our, our things to do. The pint has been fantastic. The conversation has also been amazing so again thank you very much for for joining us and really take, a pleasure taking the time out just before we wrap up here today i wanted to ask one quick favor of our listeners here at the pints and pews podcast if you could just take a quick moment and a couple of clicks to follow the pints and pews podcast on your favorite platform and give us a review that will help others come to know not only the podcast but also our catholic faith through this great cultural asset that we have of beer while you're at it if you can give us a like on facebook and drop us a line we'd be more than happy to hear from you 
hopefully we'll be able to chat again soon. And God willing, Dennis will be able to join us in the very near future. But until then, remember the wise words of G.K. Chesterton. In Catholicism, the pint, the pipe, and the cross can all fit together. God bless.